This is Omo. I'm good, Rosie. The low chair are you today? I'm lovely. I'm lovely. It's good to be Omo. It is. I, I feel good as an Omo sapien. Nice. Mm, today, our story is about sea change. What That's has happened? Back album? Ahead. Yeah. Oh, I like that album. That's a good album. Sorry. Go ahead mm. about our show. Um, it's not about Beck today. It is about yeah. the how the industry has changed abruptly in the past, uh, how it is going through abrupt changes now. Uh, and so we're going to cover a little bit of both. Yeah. <laughs> We've so got violin making and, uh, and working on instruments. Uh, it's easy to go back 300 years ago before electricity and decide that, uh, there's been a big change, but there's been drastic changes since 1975, you know? Yeah. So we've got our historic story, John Baptiste Villon. Top points. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I pronounced it right. Yay. Yeah. And <clears throat> Jerry, stop it. <laughs> and we've got, uh, who is our interview coming up? Uh, I think we're going to talk to Jerry Passowitz, um, Meisterwitz, oh, nice. as I've always liked to refer to him. Okay, great. And what's, uh, uh, what's his shop's solid. name? He's in Raleigh, right? Uh, triangle strings. Nice. We'll have to make him explain the triangle part. I think that's his, his instrument. That's what he went to school to study was the triangle. Okay. And that's why. Solved. Okay. So would you like to hear about, uh, Viam? I would. I would okay. very much like to hear about Viam. Viam was a Parisian maker who started his career in the early 1800s. <laughs> in his time, in his landscape... There was a bit of sea change going on. He's just on the other side of the mountain range from northern Italy, mm -hmm. where our beloved Omo lived in the not-too-distant past. In the city of Cremona, Italy. <clears throat> yes. But those old instruments, the Amati family and the Strad family and a dozen other makers from a century before, these instruments were falling apart. Yeah. Some of the popular lore is that old Italian violins owned by impoverished churches just didn't have the money to keep them up. And in the meantime, the great success of violins means that there's there's lots of modern makers around. Mm -hmm. And your Cremona cello fell apart? Well, just come get a new one. And it probably does sound better because your old one has a warped bridge and it's got a loose seam and it's making weird buzzing noises. So, Ooh, so are we talking about Teresio, that gentleman? We will talk a little bit about him because okay, I'll, they I'll were they were associates and some say they were friends. Depends on who you look at, whose who's story you're listening to. <laughs> I like how so, sinister you made the word friends there. <laughs> <laughs> friends. All right. So, so Viome, I'll Come you... to Paris for Viome. Come to one of the most important violin shops in Paris. Yeah. Shiny new violin, not a scratch on it. Not like those old Cremonas. 
And Villon was not only a good violin maker, he was a showman and he was a salesman. Oh, he had definitely. this trifecta skill set. Number one. Yeah. What? The trifecta. What's number one? Oh, because he is a good maker. And number and two. And he's a showman. And, and he's number a three. salesman. Nice. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm on the same page with you. Okay. Trifecta. Trifecta. Yeah. So when we talk about sea change, we're really talking about two value systems colliding. Yeah. And depending on which lens you look through, you can either see Viom as a pretty innovative and fairly ethical guy, or you can see him as a literal snake oil salesman. Well, so. if, if his instruments weren't of any quality, then <clears throat> see, I got sensitive. You're talking smack on Viom. <laughs> if his instruments weren't so nice, then <laughs> I might subscribe to the second, but. Well, we're going to look at both angles. Okay. We're going okay. to start with the Viom was a bad guy angle, and then we're going to go back to like some of his cooler things. I like the idea of him as like a super villain foil for the the Cremonese makers. Okay, let's let's do this. He's got guy. the name for it, right? Viol. Like it seems like he should have a mustache that he twirls on his instruments. We talked about the mustache with That's okay, right. okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll let you let you go. Okay. So there's the story of the fake varnish. Do you know this story? I love this story. So this is maybe the most retold story that he sold fake varnish out of his fake garden workshop he would host these how-to classes for hobbyists in paris and he'd sell a whole bunch of varnish and then he'd close up shop and run up to his attic where his real workshop was and wipe off all the junk varnish before it dried <laughs> he'd wipe off so he'd wipe off the varnish he was selling and pretending yes. he used to yes. yeah, his competitors uh, yeah i love it yeah so and he had he, this amazing, uh, you know, estate where if people came out to lay the money out to be able to varnish as well as he did on his instruments, you know, the setting would uh, would help him with that. You know, you'd, you'd come up in a in a, a horse and carriage and and come into a beautiful, beautiful salon, and he'd run up to the attic to to wipe the crud off. It's so good. Oh, see, he's a good showman. Love it. So, uh, yeah, Paris is full of these amateur makers. And for him, he's just like, this is good business. I'm, I'm selling to hobbyists. And then when they fail, they're going to come to me for something really nice. So excellent. Yeah. <laughs> so he also was a copyist, which mm -hmm. could be in the camp of he was a good guy or he was a bad guy. Well, I think before Roger Hargrave, he was the copyist. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, we talked about the Voller brothers. Um, mm -hmm. Loved that episode, Rosie. Yeah. Yeah, um, me too. Thank you. But I, I, I mean, Viom was the man who started producing, you know, bench mm -hmm. copies of a specific instrument. And uh, mm -hmm. we can look back and and see with his varnish, which is harder than that of the Cremonese instruments, Mm -hmm. A snapshot of what the Cremonese looked like 150 years after they were made. And now a oh, lot of those. Oh, that's interesting. Are, okay. Yeah, it's because uh, that varnish is much more delicate. So it, it's an interesting like snapshot in time. If you yeah. have a VM that's really, really well preserved, like Hilary Hans. Of so what... his, um, his stuff, because it's lasting longer, because it's made like with the harder materials, mm -hmm. it, we think that it looked like 
Cremonese instruments 150 years old. Yeah, and it, it's it's interesting to to take that as a, a metric for how the the Cremonese varnish really wore over time. That's really cool. Uh, so the one of the other really famous stories is that the that dude Paganini. That one a, dude. Yeah, that one dude who's a really big player in the time. He left a his copy of his or he left his original Guarneri del Gesù mm-hmm. uh, at the shop for some adjustments. And later, William comes to him like after the fact, and he's like, "Got another violin," and he sets it down next to the original. And he like like flips the table around and like puts him <laughs> under spins yeah. the table. Nice. Yeah, he like puts him <laughs> under solo cups and like swaps <laughs> the solo cups around and. He's like, all right, which one's yours? And so the lore is that Paganini could not tell until that until he like pointed out. He's like, okay, here's the difference right here. And there's like a, a darkened spot on a piece of wood. Ooh, on a piece yeah. of violin wood. Piece of violin wood. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sounds to me like Paganini was a hack, you know, because uh, you could tell, I could tell, right? <laughs> oh, surely, yeah. Yeah, Paganini, he he was no good at at all. At anything. He he clearly didn't have the reputation of being so masterful that there was a rumor that he did, had a deal with the devil. Yeah, I mean, maybe find a better devil next time if you can't yeah. tell your violin apart from a viome. Get with it, Paganini. <laughs> so, all right, did I miss any like viome could be a bad guy? Any in in that camp? No, I mean, I, I think he, I don't think you missed anything. Okay. That, that's, uh, he, he's a bad guy. <laughs> People are complex. Yeah. I mean, he made a lot of money. You could put that in that camp. Oh, yeah? Because if you make money, you're automatically bad, right? Because you hate America, <laughs> Rosie Deloach. I'm not a pure capitalist. <laughs> okay, so Viam was great point. He's an amazing man. <laughs> he, of the copies he made, he was very ethical about them because he clearly marked them. He numbered them. He labeled them. They're accounted for today for the most part. So he, there was never like this like, trying to pass something off as something it wasn't have you seen his his signature uh oh my gosh uh is that the one he writes up in the like the bell uh, upper belly is that and, him? yeah yeah and uh, uh jerry lynn gave me a, a great moniker for it he calls it the hieroglyphic and i, I think that mm. might have come from uh our our friend jeffrey holmes yeah but it's this marvelously florid scrawl where you can't see that it says anything like Jean-Baptiste Viome, but it's uh, it's just this chaotic squiggle. And I, I've seen it inside his basses and inside his violins and inside his cellos. And it's it's a really lovely, lovely piece of, of him trying to keep his stuff from being passed off. And it is so florid and ridiculous that it would be really hard to copy if you didn't make it up yourself and it's huge right yeah it's huge <laughs> it's like compared to like the little tiny labels that we put inside instruments and some people put their signature in in that label he's like taking up like half of the back half of the of, yeah. yeah it's it's like if you if you held a brand new pencil all the way up at the eraser mm-hmm. and then made a a three inch wide signature it's it's yeah it's silly <laughs> he was also a great experimenter 
Mm. Yes. This dude invented the hollow steel bow. Did you know what? that? Yeah. That sounds useless, but cool. <laughs> I agree. I, yeah. I have a hollow steel bow in my shop. And I Do don't you? Know it, yeah, I just came up on it, and I don't think it will ever sell. It's very kooky and weird. Oh, can we use it when we write uh, a mystery novel for somebody shooting a dart and killing, like, the conductor with it? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, okay. For, what is it, Double O, what, what's his name? I don't know if Guy Hammersley is ready. <sighs> it's uh, it's Double O Seventeen O Four. Yes, okay, got it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, We're not so... supposed to talk about him, Rosie. I know, I know, I'm sorry. Okay, we'll, okay. we'll cut it all out. No mention of that guy. Okay, so, what, so else, what else did he invent? I know he baked yeah. his wood, which... Uh, mm, which was... What What was the um, point of doing that in his day? Um, so you can reduce the weight or density of tone wood that you're going to use for instruments by, oh. you know, forcing it through a humidity change that it wouldn't experience naturally for many dozens or hundreds of years. Um, okay, and you so you're, you're aging the wood prematurely. Yeah. And uh, there, there are problems which might not have been, um, you know, obvious in his lifetime, but um, for some versions of kiln baking wood and you don't always see these problems in biomes but you see them in a lot of instruments that have had the wood treated in different ways hundreds of years later um mm -hmm. it can make the wood very acidic and brittle especially the tops the spruce tops um mm -hmm. so that repairing them is a sweat fest uh, as the I've restorer heard you complain about them being brittle yeah. Oh, they're so brittle. Yeah. And so you, you go to fix a small crack that's happened naturally and the plate next to it snaps. Um, and it's, uh, it's a, a symptom of just certain pieces, sticks of wood and all wood will become acidic and more brittle with time anyway. Uh, but getting a better response from the wood and a lighter instrument in the 19th century means that um, you're also accelerating entropy and, and making those instruments more fragile sooner. That sounded so smart. I feel pretty smart right now. I'm <laughs> sitting in a closet recording with my friend in Texas, a thousand miles away. Mm, like that's sure. the future, Rosie. Mm -hmm. We are the future. Yes. You're welcome, everyone. <laughs> okay. Uh, he made a self-rehearing bow. Cool. Which... Why are we not doing this? This is great. Yeah, Rehearing yeah. a bow is such a pain. Oh, like, did you like, see the photos of the, the Gionnaire? Yes, that yes it was beautiful. So cool. It had this like amazing uh, frog that was, was it like all silver? Yeah, it was, was pierce work silver. And more or less you you trap a knot, which is, and Viomes was, was similar. You trap a knot in the tip of the bow, the head okay. where uh, where the, the up bow goes toward, and then you pull the hair down into the frog and then wind it up till it's mm -hmm. the the tension you want. You don't have to go see somebody and have, you know, uh, uh, a spread wedge and a wedge to keep the hair in put in. Anybody listening out there, this is this technology needs to happen like on a commercial scale that works. For rental instruments for kids, oh, yeah. God. I it's believe just, it's the problem that it's that never not, ends. You, oh, I'm sorry, what? No, no, yeah, trying to get bows to kids without just handing them a brand new one that was just shipped from 
from yeah. overseas for cheaper. It's crazy. Yeah, because it's cheaper than me taking the time to rehair a bow. Get yeah. on this world. I believe that you can't do as well with a self-rehairing as you can with a really fine rehair. Um, my good friend Matt Nicholson at, at Potter Violins does such beautiful rehairs. Uh, he actually trained with Jerry, who's going to be on our episode later. The guy um, who's been making all this noise in the back. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, different Jerry. Sorry. Jerry Passowitz. Well, J- yeah. Maybe Not we've Jerry got Passowitz back there, too. They're wrestling? <laughs> Perhaps. There, there's been a lot of noise. <laughs> but I, I don't think the self-rehairing are superior. But okay. on the scale with which we have children playing instruments in school programs, yeah, yeah we, it's a, it's something that we need to – it's an atavism. We need to wake it back up. Let's make the this – the next sea change people come on let's do it okay insert ocean music here <laughs> viom invented the octobase or octobase <laughs> let me start that again you said that so weird viom invented the octobase yes which yes. is the manliest base it's the manliest base and i think that there's only a handful of them in the whole world and yeah. there is a there is music, uh, there's there's opera music. I want to say Verdi, and I'm probably mm. I'm probably getting it wrong. That has parts written for it, and so every few years, some opera company somewhere, I think recently it was Toronto, uh, commissions an octobase. Oh, the sucker's gosh. what the fifteen foot tall. You have to stand on steps to be able Hell to play yeah. it, and then I believe that you have to. You have to like use some contraption to hold strings down to play different notes because you can't physically reach up there. Yeah. So and and you can have two people play it. I think that's how it was done originally. But um, so one person's on a ladder and is doing the fingerings, <laughs> and then your buddies. It's like being the two parts of a donkey costume. You know, and your I'm buddies sure the, the bow finger, arm. Probably just like your whole hand just smashing against the string instead of one finger. It's got to yeah. be. And imagine the strings, because yeah. these were gut strings. It's ridiculous. So they had to get some, like, heffalump gut. Yeah. So if, if the octo bass is not good for anything else today, except for, like, random pieces of music, it's really good for selfies. Because if you just look <laughs> online, they look so cool, and everyone yeah. wants to get a picture made. Uh, but you had just mentioned gut strings, which is just exclusively what they used at the time. And yeah. he also made this contraption that would make consistent strings. And consistent so, diameter. Yeah. 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 So um, if you got one set of gut strings and you wore them out and you bought the next set through the arm, they would feel exactly the same like density and thickness under your fingers. And so, I, I, I do some work on, on Baroque instruments uh, in my life away from this microphone. And uh, what? Having, having different strings from different makers on the same nut and bridge on a Baroque cello or on a, on a, um, a vial, it can really mess with playability. I mean, you're, you're trying to do chordal stuff. You're playing Bach on a five-string cello and you replace from a Dugalecki string to um a more commercial string just the d and suddenly it's twice as thick and you can't cross the strings and have it be comfortable i mean the, the this maybe so I, I seem excited about all of his inventions but <laughs> this is a really exciting invention 
yeah, that just the consistency for the player. Uh, and I should say, did it just that, pull it right out of the sheep? Um, yeah, and the sheep was fine. Good. Yeah. And they call it cat gut, but across the board, it meant sheep gut, just mm. in case you guys were wondering. And uh, the strings, that's a whole other episode, just all the different kinds of strings out there and how they affect the instrument, the player, the sound. It's it's a tangled web, Chris. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's a tangled web of string. <laughs> so at, we're getting toward the end here. And there's the story of John Baptiste Fiam's friend, Teresio. Hey. And and the way that I have read about this, it makes him seem so, so likable. Uh, so the lore of Luigi Teresio is that he's this adorable, poor country Italian who is brilliant enough to collect all those old, broken down instruments in poor country churches in exchange for carpentry services, you know, just like Jesus. So this story couldn't get more elegant. <laughs> So Teresio would cross those mountains and bring them to Villam in Paris. And Villam would give him good money for these treasures that he saw uh, that themselves, they were just on the cusp of sea change in popularity. While he's selling those brand new, pretty Parisian instruments, he knows, he knows everyone's about to get wise to these well, beautiful and old instruments. I'm sorry, if he has all of them, mm -hmm. then when everybody gets wise, guess what? Mm -hmm. uh, guess mm -hmm. who's getting rich? Yeah. So he gave a little bit more than what might have been market, the way I understand it, to You're Luigi. Yeah, yeah, like he, he would, uh, Teresa would shop around and Leon was just willing to give a little bit more than, than everyone else. If he came every mm -hmm. time. Yeah, I mean... Mm -hmm. That's one way in a career that spans decades to bet on your own horse in this business. Um, uh, I, I worked uh, at my first job for, for Big P Prier in Salt Lake City, and he was collecting beautiful Nuremberger bows. Okay. And I, I, I don't know if he ever did, but his intent was to have dozens of them and then release a book. And then when the book comes out, everybody sees that, uh, you know, the, the exceptional quality of these German bows lifts it above the, the, the word German into the realm and price range of more expensive French bows. And then who's left holding all that money when, uh, when he doubles their price with his, his book he puts out. And that's classic. It's, it's I so love good. it. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> So Viom was doing this with Amadis and Stradivaris and Del Jesus. Uh, that's yeah. on another level. Yeah, yeah. And so between like Luigi, Teresio, and Viom, there's evidence that they uh, talked back and forth a lot, visited each other, and even traveled together. So uh, there's a lot of evidence out there that points to them being like really good friends, that they were more than just business associates. They were buddies. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a little bit of a counter argument that um, that is released into the public because William, again, like this brilliant marketer, like he had access to uh, like 
writing down information and and publishing things and so he, he had was access able to, to pens yeah 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 he was yeah, able he to, to have more control over the story and so present it as a really nice sweet endearing friendship so yeah. we we don't yeah. know <laughs> like, whatever sells best yeah. yeah i mean i'm sure it was a little bit of both like they both scratch each other's back uh but uh but people like to argue about these things mm -hmm. how much were they and friends no press is bad press, which yeah. is why I'd like to tell everyone that Rosie and I are in a fight right now. Oh, I I wasn't aware about this fight. I know you're you're keeping it together pretty well, but um, I'm furious at you as long as it gets us more listeners. Is okay. Is this about when I ran over your violin with my car? Is that? I keep this... it in the driveway mm -hmm. while I'm loading the kids up. And you know that mm -hmm. you know and that we have spectacular video footage that will get millions of likes of, of it's... this incident. <laughs> there were like punches thrown, right? That's what happened, right? It's, it's still happening. It's okay. happening right now. Well, let's try to get over that for a minute and set aside our differences and go on with the show. So if if uh, I'd like to be Luigi Teresio, if mm -hmm. you're going to be Viome, and we're going to have this fake friendship, even though we're fighting. Okay. 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 We'll do our best. Last point about Viome. That dude wore a fez. <laughs> That's your last point. I love that. <laughs> I so don't <laughs> know why, and it was important enough to him to pose in pictures. Like, like nope, uh, this is my every look. Every picture. Yeah. I, I wear a fez and I cannot find any information about why, like, was, was he a Shriner? I don't no, know. No. Like, I don't think there were Shriners. Okay. So he, he was the first Shriner. That's the story now. Um, <laughs> if anybody um, knows anything about like why this was his fashion choice, I would really. Is, isn't a fez pretty hard to keep on your head? Like, it seems like it doesn't fit down over the crown of your head. I don't know. So don't know. perhaps it's a vehicle for brandy. Okay. Okay. So you could, like, set some under there? Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's he lifts his hat off, and there's, like, some actually nice varnish and a small bottle of wine. That's Perhaps a monkey. varnish. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. I think you've solved it. This episode is brought to you by International Violin. For 86 years, International Violin has been supplying violin makers and violin shops with specialty supplies. When you call, you get Lori, Kenny, or Danny on the phone, and they're there to help you with whatever you need. Everything you need to build a violin from scratch, from tone wood to tools to varnish. They've even got instructional books and DVDs in case violin making was something you always wanted to try but didn't know how to start. If you're listening, give them the promo code OMO, O-M-O, at checkout or on the phone, and you'll get $5 off your next order. You can reach them at internationalviolin.com or call them at 1-800-542-3538. That's internationalviolin.com or 1-800-542-3538. Don't forget that OMO promo at checkout for $5 off your order. Thanks for listening. Ciao. Ciao. We've got Jerry Passowitz joining us today. Hi, Jerry. Hi. How are you? Hi, Jerry. <laughs> Thank hey, you Chris. so much. 
good. Jerry, you are over at Triangle Strings. Yes. And that's in Raleigh, North Carolina. It is. Okay. That's your and joint, right? In the triangle. Mm. Yeah. For people who are not familiar with the geography, can you explain why you use the term triangle? Sure. Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill. That's the, the <laughs> triangle here in North Carolina. I mean, I told everyone it was because that's what you majored in in college. Triangle. <laughs> the triangle. Yes. Yeah. Close. I was a bassist. Ah, so uh, you you had less of your own apartments than a triangularist. You lived Cor- with other people. Right. Exactly. Delivered I, pizzas. I handled that really well, guys, just in case you were wondering. Yeah, <laughs> it came off well. But it also fit with the uh, business model because we did um, instruments, bows, and setup. Oh, so lovely. Triangle kind of went with that. I knew it had a double meaning. I love it. A so, triple meaning. It, it um, does yeah. have a triple because there's You're also correct. a bow, <laughs> instrument, and player. Nice. It's a triple, triple meaning. You're a triple threat, Jerry. <laughs> okay, so you've been in the business for 40 years. You, 40 years, yes. You've worked side by side with a lot of influential people in this field. Let's start with your early years. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what made you fall in love with, with violin making and who influenced you early on? Um, well, I started playing uh, violin when I was in the second grade. And um, I was always uh, into machines and tools and things like that. And it just uh, hit me that the uh, most uh intricate thing you could do with wood was the violin so i took up um trying to make violins but from the very beginning i was much more fascinated with um making things disappear than making violins the violin making and the uh, bow making were just a means uh to the end of restoration and that's really always been my focus so by making things disappear, you're not talking about magic, but you're talking about uh, having accidents or restoration become background noise for the instrument itself. It's it make it make it uh, disappear to the site, but mostly making the guilt disappear from <laughs> having it happen in the first place. Yeah, um, from you having done it. <laughs> uh, we we try to send things out with uh, less damage than they come in with. Sure, but sure. mostly when um, when uh, things happen to players or to moms at the beginning, or um, unfortunate leaving of cases behind cars and parking lots, uh-huh. things like that. Yeah, that's like the new rite of passage. Uh, I, I've moved on to getting my first flooded instrument, but when you get that I first instrument, that. Ooh, Oh, the 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 merviola, the river fiddle. But mm-hmm. that that first instrument that was set down and then backed over in its case, and and somebody comes in and and all of the blood has left their body to go into their heart, and and you know that's what you're going to get when they open it up. Mm-hmm. And it's always always traumatic for them. Um, yeah. I I had one uh, one person come in and she had broken the neck off of her. Um, violin when she fell off of stage and um our shop is on the second floor 
and she limped up. Her foot was all blown up because she stopped by to see oh, no. us before she went to the hospital. Oh, my God. <laughs> so everything was injured. Everything was injured, but, <laughs> I mean, it's it's major. But her priorities were straight. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> so that was that was always the – that's that was really what fascinated me. And um, I don't know exactly how some of the uh, violin makers do it um, because they make incredible instruments, and some of them look very similar to the ones they made before. And I'm, I just always am fascinated and enthused by new problems that come up. Yeah. It's problem solving. Speaking of restoration, you spent some time working with Renee Morel in New York in the nineties. Am I saying his name right? Yes. Okay. Oh, actually it's supposed to be Renee. Renee. Okay. uh, But being from Pittsburgh, I always called him Renee. Renee. Okay. I do, I'm just slowly through this podcast mispronouncing everybody's name. I've been we, coached on saying Passowitz as well. She's um, being coy. We're we're telling <laughs> her to do it wrong so that we can educate the public. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So before his passing, he was arguably one of the best violin restorers in the field. Yes. So tell us a little bit about working with him. Um. Let's see. I, I came to uh, to Renee after working with uh, David Burgess out in uh, Ann Arbor. He was and, your boss at Char? Uh, not really. I I ran the workshop at Char, and David, I think his title was artistic <laughs> manager or something along those. So was he my boss? Yeah, I did what he told me to do and how he told <laughs> me to do it, but he's not the one that signed my paycheck okay i won't i won't ever suggest that again okay Okay. yes i I don't think he he ever wanted to be the boss okay uh but renee was a a very interesting guy he came um came out of the uh the french mirecourt tradition Mm -hmm. and um he had worked uh under sacconi at Wurlitzers in new york which was you know one of the top uh three maybe four violin shops in the country um, yeah. And when I got there, I was uh, 26, 26, 25, 26 years old. Mm-hmm. And Renee ran a shop. Um, and at that time, we had seven guys. At that point, there was only guys in the workshop, seven guys from six different countries. Um, wow, that's amazing. All of us around 25, 26 years old. Okay, and were you all, were you all terrified? We were we were completely terrified because we we had it absolutely ingrained in us that anything Renee said could make or break our careers. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, we were all hot shots from where we came from, so Renee had to um, had to hold together all of these egos from getting out of control, and at the same time, it was a um, a real pressure cooker of getting things done. So, you know, today uh, things are um, a lot more civilized, at least in our workshop. But yeah. at that point in time, when uh, Renee took in a, a project, he would um, schedule when that person was going to come and pick up that project. 
And then the parson would go and he would come back into the shop and hand you and tell you when it was due. And there was no coming in early or staying late. You Mm. got there at 8.30 in the morning and you left at 5 at night. And there certainly wasn't any, Renee, I need more time. And was the budget discussed with you or was it understood that you were to make it finished, make it so by that date, no matter what? There was no budget. That was, we were, we were um, the tools of the workshop. So we would not even, uh, most of the time, not even see customers. I mean, certainly not in a professional (sighs) manner, but see customers, meaning that there was a tiny little window in the shop door that every once in a while you could look out to see who was there. And there was a couple budgeting that is seems to be gone now in a way that I saw the very tail end of working for Big P Prier that uh, the amount of time he gave me was how much he knew he was going to make a margin on and uh, I had better get on board. Oh yeah, the, I mean there there wasn't I mean there literally wasn't any Renee I need more time. And and things were, I mean, I think for a, a neck reset, we did about, a, I want to say, a week and a half, something like that. Oh, my goodness. And neck, neck grafts. I mean, it was just, you just cranked them, uh, cranked them out. But and it all had to be at a very, very high level. Yeah. So, and this was a time before... I can reach for the Vicehar book as 25-year-old Chris and check <laughs> in on on the best practices. And uh, you were uh, instrumental in some other publications about restoration, but um, there wasn't a standard per se. You were you were just expected to already know your stuff. Uh, you were expected or you got there very, very quickly. And I wouldn't say that the Vicar book was standard practice as there seemed to be a sort of East Coast, West Coast sort of um, uh, wrapper thing going on between <laughs> um, Rene and Vicar. Oh, and if great. you carefully look through the book, you will see a little... little um, Digs back and forth, yes. <laughs> so no, say, the Vicar book was not <laughs> not around the workshop at all. I must what say that sounds, really? as much as it sounds challenging, that sounds really quite magical to have that much talent in one space. And yeah. and perhaps, perhaps not sustainable, but <laughs> I, I don't know if that uh, resonates with you. <laughs> Uh, oh, absolutely. I mean, you, you, I mean, you knew that if you made it through, then you did something. Yeah. And yeah. the people that the, most of the time musicians were not allowed back into the workshop. And we always, uh, we always got a little chuckle because at five o'clock, everybody would head down the elevators and, and us as the, the little elves would be in the back of the elevators and the, the violinists would be talking to each other about how Renee just cut them a bridge or made them a sound post or a fingerboard. <laughs> and and I, I never saw Renee cut a bridge. Um, mm-hmm. He certainly had the chops to do any of it, but it was it was kind of the... The uh, attitude that um, the shop was really trying to portray. Yeah. And 
even back in the workshop, uh, there was very few musicians that were ever allowed to come back. Um, amongst those were, you know, um, Zuckerman and uh, Perlman and um, Jamie Laredo would come back once in a while. Mm. I did have the uh, the great opportunity to um, to meet Stefan Grappelli. Did some work for him. Oh, uh, that's was, wonderful. That There's was, a personal hero of mine. Mine too. Um, I, uh, yeah. For really. someone who's never heard of him, can you can you give me just a little bit of info on this person? Oh yes, uh, Stefan Grappelli is jazz violin. Yeah. Okay. Pre pre or or just on the edge of Stuff Smith, who might have an American toehold, but okay. Uh, okay, thank you. You yes. know who Django Reinhardt is, yeah. I do. So yeah. Stefan was on most of Django's recordings as his violinist. And... Oh, okay. okay. And wow. a very sweet man. And we also would have uh, um, uh, Isaac Stern would come by. He was a, a f- nice, well, most of the time nice, sometimes <laughs> not so nice. I, and... I think he has some daily pain that might be part of that, you know. <laughs> well, yeah. And... Uh, one guy that used to come by quite a bit was Harvey Shapiro, which is a, he was a, a, a cellist, a very fine cellist, and he used to teach at Juilliard. And okay. evidently at some point, he, he must have been very influential in selling instruments for Jacques and René, because when uh, Harvey Shapiro would uh, smoke cigars constantly while he was playing, <laughs> while he wasn't playing, while he was and, playing, he's got oh, a yes. cigar in his mouth. Oh, yes. And, and, um, <laughs> and uh, he would come by every once in a while, and his cello would just be co- coated with cigar mm. smoke and <laughs> ashes and spit and just horrible. Mm. And his bows would be, you know, they would smell like cigar smoke. So he would bring these in, but he kind of knew that, it was kind of a pain in the in the uh, behind for us shop guys to do. <laughs> he so was foul, yeah. He was fa- so he would come in, and as soon as he got there, he'd pull out a fifty, which was a lot of money back then. Gave it to one of the shop guys to go out and get champagne. Oh, and so ten o'clock in the morning, the shop guys are <laughs> drinking champagne, cleaning the spit off of Harvey Shapiro's cello, and doing his bows. And Rene and Jacques could not say a word because nice. it was Harvey. Nice. So, oh my goodness, that's even wonderful. If you ever see old pictures of the uh, the Francais workshop, you will see next to all of the glue pots, there's champagne bottles. <laughs> that, it's all Shapiro's fault. That's right. And those champagne bottles we used to keep extra water in to be able to fill up our glue pots, but those are all from Harvey Shapiro. <laughs> And some might say the tradition of drinking on the job continues. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> some, some would say some that. Might, yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, so fast forward. Now you are in charge of a shop. You are directing things and, and you have seen to do it a little bit differently than Renee did it. Uh, what did you carry over the same and what did you yeah. decide to change? Well, the one the one thing that I wanted to change was the kind of pressure cooker. 
because Mm -hmm. when you're in a situation like that, accidents happen because there's such pressure. Now, it was always uh, comforting that when something would happen, um, Renee was there to to bail you out, um, but accidents happen. So we mm-hmm. we got away from that. Um, also, we did not get paid very well at Francais, so all of us had to um, to work in the evenings uh, mm-hmm. in order to be able to make ends meet. So that I didn't want to have happen either. Um, mm-hmm. So yes, I started a shop, but the one thing I really respected about Renee was the elegance at which he he handled people, customers, um, specifically um, his his sense of humor, some kind of times a silly sense of humor, but also the elegance at which he would handle anything that happened around the shop. Um, it was always uh, if if something happened, then the first thing is you just get it done. You uh, everybody keeps a cool head, and there's no drama. Grace in crisis. Exactly. And we were talking about in the first half the uh, the elegance of Viam and his business sense, and it sounds like Renee's got a dose of that as well. Just able to elegantly handle whatever's going on. Uh, very much, and I, I think he knew. I mean, he knew obviously the uh, the kind of pressure that we were under, and he knew who was responsible for that pressure. But the the way that he kept the drama out when things happen, because things happen every place, not only mm-hmm. violin shops, but every place. And what separates the 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 good from the bad from the absolute elegance is how you handle when those things happen. Mm-hmm. And Renee was always good. So when I started the shop here, we needed to. Um, to first of all, we wanted to get people in to uh, teach them how to do things without it being so so darn difficult. Um, when I got into the business, I mean, we had the we had the Strobel books, and oh, yeah. um, years later, we had one sheet of paper that I believe was, um, in fact, I'm pretty sure it was authored by Guy Rebu. Although I've never asked him about it. The but eyes it was, only paper. The eyes only paper. Yeah. <laughs> okay, what's, what's the eyes only paper? What is that? Oh, it's a super secret document. <laughs> but you brought it's, it up. It's, it's nothing but measurements. The kind of thing that, that you would be able to find on the internet in a, in a second and a half. just Before sh- the internet. Yes. Okay. String heights and... So, uh, Rosie, this... But this arrived day. in Salt Lake City when I was second year student from someone, and it was like it was like an early copy of House of Leaves. It had like coffee stains on it, and it had been gnawed on by a dog. Okay, and then, like it was brought out of a duffel bag as if it was made out of beaten copper. You know, it was <laughs> okay. okay, and it had standard measurements for setup. Um, that were comprehensive, and in big letters it said "eyes only." And I, I think, I, Jerry, I think it's Guy Rabu and McCain. McKean. probably they they, <laughs> they were they were kind of uh, uh, close. But this was also before the Vicar book. When the Vicar book came out, that was a real in the in the business to have Vicar share some of these 
uh, techniques uh, was was quite controversial. It's like firing uh, a torpedo I should, at I people's should, money. Sorry, in. Rosie. Sorry, Rosie. Yeah, go ahead. Firing a torpedo. a torpedo. Okay. <laughs> but also <laughs> because the... people worried that, you know, if people get a little bit of knowledge, then they're going to screw everything up. And I mean, there's a mm-hmm. lot of... There's a lot of truth to that, but yeah, uh, that, doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't keep them from screwing things out up yeah. without any knowledge. Without it, yeah. Uh, so to clarify, the Weissar book is a beautiful tome. Uh, it it cost about three hundred dollars on today's mm-hmm. market, uh, and and any any violin shop worth its salt is going to have a copy. It's a and, handbook and it for goes the restoration. Through, it's the the next step of repairs. It's not just you know how to set up a beginner violin. It's when you've mm-hmm. got to do the complicated stuff. This is a how to with pictures, and it was, in many ways, a first of its kind. Templates for setup, measurements, mm-hmm. uh, and it it was um, a breakup of the old world, which is what we're talking about uh, in this mm-hmm. episode about sea change. Mm-hmm. keeping things to your chest and going to the grave with them unless somebody marries your daughter and takes the shop over. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly right. Which, now, Jerry, um, yes. you've been a part of this in a way mm-hmm. because a lot of your shop is is about sharing how in detail how you do repairs. That is on the internet from your website. Uh, oh, what a wonderful yeah. resource, Jerry. Well, yeah, yeah well, like I, I look at your website all the time. Uh, can you? I tell mine us... it for the magazine I edit all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, tell us a little bit about why you decided. You know, something that really doesn't. I don't know. It may not make you any solid money, but that was mm-hmm. important enough for you to put in in have it as part of your shop and part of your ethic. Sure. Well, th- uh, first off, this didn't this didn't start with me. I mean, the the uh, the internet articles, um, uh, Carrie, I think, was originally came up with that idea. But even okay. before that, I mean, uh, Renee training people and the fact that Burgess. I mean, if you look at, at what happens at um, Oberlin, Ohio, every year, and you see how many of those people have come through the Burgess workshop, and mm-hmm. before Burgess, there was Visar. And before vice, so it goes back a ways. Um, mm-hmm. For me, uh, when I started to to teach, um, the the dirty little secret about teaching is that it's a very selfish thing because mm-hmm. there's nothing that teaches you more than teaching others, and there's nothing that solidifies things in your mind than having to talk about them and putting your opinions and your techniques on the line because once you once you tell somebody you've got all those questions coming at you and you got to have all your ducks in a row and and it teaches that's you so true that i'm, is I'm so just true. over here shaking my head at the the truth you're dropping yeah. <laughs> yeah. yes so until the, you have to frame something then you don't know what its parameters are it's a Exactly right. And it's, it's, that's, I mean, one great thing about Oberlin is that everybody teaches, everybody learns. And it is, it's a just one. So the same thing with the, the articles, the, the articles, everybody in the shop um, uh, uh, writes the articles. And it's great because they have to go and do the research and they call people and they, they figure out what's going and write it down. And, and they're the ones that feel the, uh, 
the uh, emails or the phone calls about the articles. And I, I think it's a great, it, it not only teaches you about the subject, but it teaches you about how to learn and how to teach in the future. So yeah. um, there's, it, there is always the, the old thought, um, the old guard about uh, protecting customers and, and protecting your, your eyes only measurements and things like that. But uh, it's a different world now. And yeah. I never saw that the dissemination of uh, of uh, knowledge good practice. It, it's good practice because it always comes back. It always, and it and it's it never it never costs you anything. It's 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 always a. I've always seen it to be a good thing. That's and, the saw I always land on when trying to make cheesy metaphors for this is, uh, you know, if, if your neighbor's growing tomatoes and they suck and you give them good seeds, everyone's tomatoes improve. <laughs> yes. Very much. I mean, and the, the whole idea of people protecting things and, and seeing it as, as a competition, I've never, never quite got that. Um, and, you know, um, Joe Grubel, uh, likes to say, you know, a, a rising tide raises all boats and, mm-hmm. and it's true. Uh, so it, it just helps everything. And if you look at things today, I mean, some of the experts that we have, some of the people that, that, um, specialize in identification, like Chris Verning and, and, um, uh, Jim Warren and some of these guys, they, they sit down and they do the studying and they share information back and forth because it helps everybody. If they can identify a maker that nobody knew before, it just helps the whole business and it helps the whole, yeah. the whole art, um, that we're trying to, uh, to keep around. It sounds like people are invested in the art as a whole more than invested in themselves. And that's lovely. It's very lovely, yes. Um, just to clarify, trianglestrings.com, is that correct? That's it. Okay, so um, anybody out there who's curious and wants to take a look at all these detailed <laughs> things, head there. Oh, they're amazing. Uh, Jerry, can I ask you one thing? Sure. Are you a sausage baron? <laughs> uh, no. No. Ah. My, uh, my, okay. uh, my grandfather... <laughs> Graduated from the sausage making college of Warsaw. Wow. So I amazing, I came up. Title. <laughs> yes, they actually. I've I've seen the degree. It's the college of uh, the sausage making college of Warsaw. And so you're um, only a sausage viscount. I I am really um, ashamed to say <laughs> that my grandfather's kolbasi recipe I never got. And for my adult life, I have been trying to imitate it um, because my my uncles died and took it with them to the grave. Um, so, but if they had been part of the sea change, then maybe we could enjoy that at the VSA this next year. There you go. But you know, there's always new sausage to be made. Excellent. <laughs> I love that as a as a, a wrap up. Yes. Jerry, <laughs> is there anything – so you, you've been – again, you've been doing this 40 years. You've seen a lot of changes in the industry. But you're still what, a spring chicken. Yeah. yeah. So you're a youngin. But what would you like to see 
changed still. Mm. Changed? Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> this now he's get... just checked off the first four things he can't say. <laughs> he's moved on to the fifth. Yeah, this could get me in a lot of trouble. <laughs> if we We're here for it, you, bud. Um, I really like looking at original work. And original work for me isn't necessarily instruments that are made with all new varnish, uh, but it is uh, instruments that if I had to put six violin makers on one side of the room mm -hmm. and six violins on the other side of the room, I want to be able to draw direct lines between that instrument and that maker. I think you want to see their soul in their instrument. I want to, yes, I want to yeah. see who they, who they are. And okay. uh, we all know great makers who, if in, in, in the, the, uh, the dusk, you can identify their instruments based on their personality. And you're looking There's at the rub. Yes. When you look like, the, the, um, uh, uh, the turbulence uh, of having to make sales, Jerry, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. You look at whom? Well, I mean, there's, there's a uh, Grubau and Seifert. I mean, you can yeah. you can tell their instruments. You got you got Burgess. I mean, Burgess oh. is a is a Burgess. Um, uh, Pablo, Pablo's instruments yeah. are Pablo's. Pablo and Alfaro. Alfaro, yes. Mm -hmm. And there's yeah. there's a few makers like that that are out there that it just every one that you see, you can tell it came from their hands. And and if you know them for a few years and you know how they came up, you can see how they they progressed. That's what I'm I'm. That's what I really like to see. Now, oh, Oberlin that. has hurt that, that a little bit because, uh, especially at first when, when Oberlin started, it was just a whole bunch of lemmings. Somebody would do one thing and everybody would run over there and do that thing. And then they would <laughs> do something else and they'd run over there and do that thing. And Well, and information but, sharing was new. So what do you do? You throw the next year into giving it a go. Yeah. Well, yeah. And and it's good because I think that that helped helped people of that that time really uh, solidify who they are, and that's that's really what I want to see. I, I I like to I like to see that. I I I do have a a thing for full varnished instruments, only because if if we're constantly if we're constantly copying somebody else, the best we can ever get is as good as they were. Well said. Yeah. I'd like to to shout out in that vein, and although they are antiqued instruments, uh, Jason Visseltier oh, yes. is my favorite original. And uh, he, I mean, he has a finished instrument, which is so indicative of his method that at auction, 500 years from now, no one will ever be able to shake a herring at a Visseltier and say it's mm -hmm. anything else. And Mm. Exactly right, and if you look back at at when he he was he was starting out back when I was in New York, and you look at mm -hmm. back at the, some of the Visseltier and Young stuff, uh -huh. and see it moving along, you can tell him that he's just kind of flopping in the wind there for a little bit, and then it just gets more and more focused and focused and focused. Mm -hmm. Yes, we had a um, a a, a Visseltier, was it a Visseltier celebration week here? 
<laughs> Did you really add triangle? <laughs> oh, yes. With with Elizabeth brought uh, Jason Visseltier in for a week, and he sat here and um, uh, made instruments in the shop with all the guys and females at that time, women at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was yes. a uh, a quartet. And that's, that's to say that, that your shop was full of female luthiers, not that they had come to throw – Flowers at Jason. Mm-hmm. That's 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 true. <laughs> was there a banner and was there cake? There oh. was there was a quartet concert at the okay. end of the week, and not only was there cake, but there was wine. Okay, it was, okay. It was a resounding yes. yes. Excellent. But yes, Excellent. Jason Visseltier is exactly exactly what I'm what I'm getting at. Nice, nice. That's a that's a strange thing when we're, we're talking about expertise and the world shrinking and expertise becoming more available because it's more concentrated, is that there are makers whose work doesn't speak to me aesthetically, but whom I recognize will be more successful. If we're looking at uh, instrument making and in, in the very basic urge of it is, you know, a on the plane of Ilium, Achilles was there to write his name in history. That's mm-hmm. why he put up with the king. It, and if you're leaving something down the years and sales in your career force you to emulate the fashion instead of choosing your own path, then you're not going to be the one who's visible as yourself on that auction block when you're gone. And, uh, that's a lot of uh, that's a lot of ego, I know, but it's, it's something I toy with in my head. Well, it, it the thing like, is, go ahead. Go ahead. The thing is, though, um, it's it's where you set that parameter, right? Because every violin maker is making something that looks like a violin, and the the difference between way off the reservation and exactly down the middle is probably not very recognizable to most people. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So, I mean, you may as well go ahead and do what you want to do because when it gets down to it, it's not the aesthetic choices that you make and the stylistic choices that you make are not going to be recognized by the majority of the people that are um, purchasing the product. To most people, it is just a violin. I I, I appreciate that perspective, you guys. Yeah. <laughs> and it's yeah, the same, way, same way with bows. But to us, yeah. it's it's when you know all the fine artists and you recognize a Basquiat and you recognize an Eve Klein and because they've mm. pursued their passion, they they've they have made their mark in their own individual way, and and so for the for us who and I don't I won't even say I have those eyes yet, uh, but for the rest of us, we we can see those little tiny things that mark the individual. And I would say that it is commercially viable because if if you can get your instruments out there to where they are starting to be recognized by instrument dealers, everybody wants to recognize something. I mean, there's a reason why Sartori's all look the same because yeah, yeah. every dealer across the United States and the world can can you know uh, know a Sartori from across the room. It's it's about scope and about opportunity beneath that though because uh Jerry there there was a long time when I had to get most of the way through an instrument in the white and then decide which market I was going to give it to mm-hmm. because if the purfling was perfect then it was going to Albuquerque <laughs> and uh <laughs> and there couldn't be any holes in the arches but nothing else mattered and if um 
it was made of of firewood which was tonally viable then it was going to boston so the market dictated what i took where but i was also on a path which was fairly abnormal i think uh for a lot of makers in in the last 20 years, mm-hmm. which was trying to leave my house and go on sales trips with my own stuff rather than waiting for the, the work to pour into me. Okay. Well, what I would say about that is, you know, you're you're not you're on a path. And it just like we look at, at Jason Visseltier's stuff from many years ago. Uh, where he was doing the same sorts of things, it's all it all makes sense once you get down the road and all those pieces fit into place. So I'm not sure it was that you were misguided or on a wrong place. It's just that every oh, every step got you closer to where you are. We're all yeah. on a path. Yes, yes. I I like to say to people that don't know what I'm talking about, all roads lead to Cremona. <laughs> <laughs> And I like to say that all roads lead to bacon. Nice. <laughs> I knew you were a sausage baron deep down in your heart. Oh, Jerry Passowitz, thank you for speaking with us. Sure. Uh, about all, all of the many things that you have seen. This was done. great, Jerry. Yes. Uh, that's Jerry Passowitz at Triangle Strings in Raleigh. And that's trianglestrings.com. Check him out. And if you need for... a triangularist for your yes. wedding, he's available. <laughs> and uh, uh, thanks for doing this, guys. It's yeah. uh, it's yeah. good to have somebody putting these these things together. That's yeah. great. Thanks for saying like everyone to welcome Janelle Steele, who is the director juvenensis of the Bow Restoration Workshop at uh, the Oberlin Summer Workshops. The director what? Juvenensis. That means she's pretty new at it and she's doing great. Oh, okay. Um, She's got her own shop. Yeah, I uh, I have my own shop down here in Portland and mostly restoration, Bow Restoration. Yeah, and Janelle works sitting on a giant ball, which is weird. That's right. If my butt isn't happy, no one's happy. So <laughs> I have a ball chair. It's the best. It's nice. Uh, she does fantastic restoration work, and she's a nice human being. And she's got a funny story for us today about producing a relic making a copy of a, of a hand tool that was dear to a, a mutual friend and teacher of ours. That's right. Well, Chris and I both went to the Violin Making School of America, and we had some fantastic teachers there. And Mr. Song Hoon Lee is a wonderful varnish and setup teacher at the school. And um, Does not answer to Hooney, unfortunately. No. <laughs> And he was very generous and and also gave us uh, quite an extensive tool list for our um, restoration class that he was teaching us that summer. And we were working on setup and restoration. And 
um, he had had this knife that was the knife to it was the knife. The I, knife. I worked next to him at Peter Prears and this knife, it was like what he would prescribe to someone who wanted to be good at this. Exactly. And he, he said that um, we should all get a knife that was similar to his. And so I, can you describe it for us? What did it look like? Yeah, it was, um, let me think how big it was. It was probably like knife sized. Yeah, knife size. Um, it was for cutting the bridge feet to fit the top. So okay. um, it was slightly curved and. It was a 12 millimeter blank side to side with a curve in the face of the bevel, which was sharpened. Yeah, it was, uh, and it was wrapped in a leather handle. And he um, he would use that for every bridge he'd ever fit to a top of a violin or cello. And so he gave us kind of uh, the dimensions and then we would order these blanks. But, you know, over time, you can't get the same materials or, you know, tools change. So it was a Swiss uh, blade, I believe. Um, It was made, I think it was made just slightly differently. Um, Or it was a blade that we couldn't couldn't order and he thought that would be the closest. And then, you know, for some reason, we, uh, I could not sharpen mine. I shaped it and I spent like half the day trying to sharpen the thing and on the 800 grit stone you were <laughs> <laughs> right. well and i i'm getting there and it's just not getting sharp so i asked him to help me and he was trying to sharpen it as well and it just wasn't getting sharp and it obviously was you know difficult for both of us <laughs> it was like that's so that's so validating when the instructor is struggling. To- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it was just the material wasn't, wasn't the same and it wasn't maybe tempered correctly or something. I don't know. Anyway. And so he said, I am going to get this sharp. I'm going to make this knife so good, but until I can do that, I will trade you knives. And he, I said, no, 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 we can't do that. You know? And he's like, no, it's your knife song. Yeah, it was the knife. <laughs> and, and he said, I will make this knife better than that knife. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And I was like, oh, okay. And so he went home and worked on it and I believe he got it to be what he wanted it to be. Um, but he uh, was so generous in giving me this knife and I used it, you know, throughout school to carve my bridge feed and it was great. <laughs> it worked really well. So fast forward, you've moved to the Carolinas and you're working for Meisterwitz himself at Triangle Strings. Yeah. When you say Meisterwitz, you mean Passowitz. Yeah. <laughs> we just interviewed. And and when did you decide that you were going to create a bench copy of Song Hoon's Knife? I was working for Jerry and, you know, Jerry at, at his shop, we fit our bridge feet using a chisel. So... I was using something different uh, to fit my bridge feet at that point. And I saw that I had, you know, I had Sanghun's knife sitting in my toolbox. And I thought, you know, I don't use this as much as I think Sanghun might want. Maybe I, I should give this back to, to Sanghun and thought about that out loud with um, a few of my coworkers. And we thought it would be so cool to make 
a replica of it and <laughs> give that to him as like a trophy of his knife, like encased in an epoxy. So <laughs> you guys have so much time on your hands. <laughs> Really, it's just like, what nerdy lengths can we go to uh-huh. for our own amusement, really? We, well, we got a, a blank and then we used some nitric on it to kind of get it hidden. <laughs> and then uh, we sharpened it to be the right exact bevel. And I sharpened it the way that Sanghoon would sharpen it. And so then... it would look right under a microscope. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then uh, we used some black max to make it you know, the, the, the patina on there. And then, um, and then I made a nice, I think the hardest part was making the handle because it was like this nice worn leather handle. Mm-hmm. Did you use kimchi in the process? At all? <laughs> Cause Songhoon, Songhoon's wife makes absolutely the best kimchi I've ever had. And it's always on his hands. Oh, that's such a good idea. There's probably some property of kimchi that would have given it an even better um, look, but I wasn't that quick with it. But so yeah, I like wore the wore the leather just in the right spots and like cut it away, and then used some chemicals and touch up stuff to like. Oh, man. Yeah, it was it was extensive, and then we went ahead and suspended it in some epoxy, a clear plastic and polished it up a little bit and then I was traveling through it was when I was moving out here actually I brought that along with the knife to give to Sanghoon <laughs> and uh, I gave it to him and we were we were slightly worried that that he might be upset that we <laughs> came yeah we thought you know like well, it looks so much like that, um, and that maybe he would cut into it and try to get the to knife. To get it back. <laughs> <laughs> so I made sure to give him the real knife very quickly after. Nice. Basically, the tribute um, trophy of the knife, and he was very he was very impressed with um, the links we went to to make it look exactly. <laughs> Heck yeah! It's <laughs> incredible. That's a serious prank. He was uh, he was a very good sport. I only I only uh, do fun things like that for people that I really appreciate. So well said. Yeah, I think I think it's it's a a perfect you know storm of dorkiness to use all of the things we use to make our restoration and repair of instruments look period appropriate, just to right. to put a smile on Songhoon's face. <laughs> Exactly. It's uh yeah, hopefully used for good. I hope that um I hope that brings a smile to Songhoon's face every time he looks at his replica knife. Yeah. <laughs> well this was fun. Thanks for talking with us, Janelle. Yeah, no problem. You guys take care. Please join us next time for another listener feedback episode. More information about this podcast can be found at omopod.com. You can also reach us on the Omophone at 240-686-5345. Invoke Sound plays our theme music.